1 Samuel chapter 14, we'll pick up in verse 47, and uh, really what you need to know kind of coming into verse 47 is not, it's not too much, because by the time we get to verse 47, what we're essentially seeing here is a kind of a wrap-up, if you will, of uh, Saul's reign. Not a wrap-up in the sense that this is the end of Saul's reign, because as you know, we've got some chapters to go and there's much to be done. Uh, however, this is we find ourselves in verse 47 entering into a bit of a, a summary, if you will, of Saul's reign. Um, but it's interesting because this summary is plopped in here sort of in an awkward position because it's like Saul's life is kind of still happening. And usually summaries come at the end of someone's life or they kind of you kind of get a little bit further down the path and things are winding down and wrapping up and then it's like, okay, and here's the summary of what happened before that. But here we find Saul's summary uh, takes place in a spot where it is wedged between two passages. It, there's, a, there's a little bit of a sandwich here that's happening. And in the previous portion of chapter 14, what we find is that Saul is portrayed, he's said to be someone who acts foolishly. He's said several times in the previous chapters to be someone who acts out of fear, who operates in such a way that he is exalting himself above God. He wants to be the king outrightly, and he wants to have his own way and do his own thing. And he continually separates himself from the structure that God put in place that had he obeyed it, he would have been a completely successful king. But Saul, nevertheless, wants to go his own way. He wants to do his own thing. He wants to make an identity for himself. He wants to come up with his own way to be known by the people. And he does this several times uh, in the previous passages where we have seen him operate as one who is this declared military leader, but yet fails really in his military pursuits before the people. We also see that he is someone who is called out frequently. Uh, Samuel has had to has had to deal with him um, several times already on the basis of him straying from his responsibilities that have been laid out for him by God. He's not been the king that God has asked him to be. Uh, Saul was set up in such a way to be successful. He was given the training. He was given the responsibility. He was given given the rules to say if if you want to have a, a a great rule. As king, if you want to reign, here's the cheat sheet. Follow this, you're good. But Saul is someone who is selfish. He wants to go his own way. And in the passage that comes just after the beginning of, uh, or after the end of verse 47 here in chapter 14, we kind of get to another section that Saul kind of goes off the rails again. But we find this middle section in. In, or this kind of middle portion of the sandwich in verse 47, to be a summary of his life that reads in a surprising way. Let's read together in verse 47. You'll kind of get the idea of what I mean here. We read this of Saul in verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly 
and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Hinnom, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, and the son or Abner was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Here is the summary that we get of Saul. And when you, if you, if you read this, if you read this in a vacuum, if you read just this portion, you'd be like, wow, Saul, you're just like really crushing it there. You're really like putting in the work. Look at this. You take over. And then you go to battle, you fight against all the enemies on every side. It seems like you're just like this person who's just ready to take on the world, ready to attack. And he, and he goes against Moab, he goes against the Ammonites, he goes against Edom, he goes against the kings of Zoab, he goes against the Philistines. And we're told wherever he turned, he routed them. He won. He just had victory after victory after victory. He, in fact, wins these great many battles. More than that, we're also told that he did this valiantly. And this is kind of put here in the middle, this, this surprisingly positive uh, declaration about Saul's life, a surprisingly uh, positive summary about Saul's life for a purpose. It's put here to kind of serve as a contrast. Because what we've just seen in the previous passage is this story about Saul's rash vow and some of the stupid things that he did that were far from God's commands. And of course, there's those negative tones there. But now we get this very positive description. We get a description that he is uh, here hard fighting all of his days. Verse 52 tells us there's hard fighting against the Philistines. All of his days, he's, he's driven them out of the Israel ter Israel's territory. But the, throughout the course of his life, there's still this constant attack from the Philistines, and so he's got to always stay on guard. But in the middle of this section, as, as positive as it reads, it kind of ends on this interesting note. right? The last thing that you read there in verse uh, 52 Is this, and when Saul, when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And what this really is is it's a it's a it's a callback. It's it's something for for the readers who are paying attention to remember back to what Samuel did say in his opening address regarding Israel's king. He said, you know, Israel, if you request this king and the Lord gives you this king, this king is going to take your sons and daughters and put them into his armies and he's going to put them into the service of his household. He's going to be all about himself and he's going to be about taking from you. And here we find that Saul is again described as someone who's like 
I'm only going to attach myself to the people who seem strong, who appear to be strong, the valiant ones. He's like, okay, you're a strong person. You work for me now. He's looking for resources to back him up. So when he gets himself in trouble, he can say, look, look what I have. I have these things. We're in trouble again. I've got a band of mighty warriors who can fight for me. I got myself backed up in a corner. Well, these guys who are the toughest, the roughest, the most equipped guys, the bravest guys, they're going to fight for me. What Saul's doing here is he's putting a security blanket in place. He's got his own security force to make sure that if anything needs doing, he's got the guys to do it. And it seems like one of those things where we might say, well, you know, it's like kind of kind of good to, you know, have some plans like that to be a faithful steward here. But what you need to understand is that this for Saul was an act of not dependence upon the Holy Spirit for wise stewardship, but rather this was an act of rebellious independence from God's plan that he had put in place to prosper Saul through obedience. You see, if Saul simply trusted in the promises of God and followed the promises of God as prescribed by God, he wouldn't have to worry about pulling together this mighty security force. Because the Lord himself says, I will fight for you. So he's like, well, you know, thanks God for that offer, uh, but I'm going to just go another way. And it seems like a foreign idea, uh, you know, to us in a bit because we don't kind of live in this world where we have security forces and we're not like people aren't trying to get us and we don't have bodyguards or people attacking us personally here. Right? That's not an issue that we personally have to deal with. But the way that this translates into our life is such that the Lord has told us that if we trust in him for salvation, if we look to him and we, as Jesus said, lose our lives for his sake, then we will find our lives. Right? Remember, those were the very words of Christ. Lose your life for my sake and you will find it. But if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. You see, what Jesus is pointing out there is the same thing that Saul is dealing with here. What what Jesus is pointing out is that, you know, you can go through life and you can try to build up everything that you need to protect yourself. You could work hard. You could get a good career. You could have a ton of money in the bank. You could have the best education. You could have the most connections. You could have a great network. You could have all of these things. But those things will eventually fail you. They'll eventually fail you. You'll get laid off. The stock market will crash. You know, you might get scammed out of your money. There's a number of different things that could happen. And when you place your trust in some of these things, as soon as those things are assaulted by the world, then all that you've put your hope in, all that you've put your trust in is gone. You might have done the right things. You might have said, well, you know, the wise thing to do is to work really hard and, and go to school. And the right the wise thing to do is to make sure that I'm, I'm uh, you know, taking care of these things. And I've got a little nest egg for tomorrow. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard and having financial stewardship. But 
you have to do it in the way that honors God. It's financial stewardship of resources that God has entrusted you with for his glory, not for you to act independently of him. But too often what we do is we say, well, you know, thanks for the tip there, God. I'm going to go ahead and take you up on that, but I'm just going to work really hard so that way next time I don't need to ask you for help. Next time I don't need you at all because, you know, you tipped me off. That was really great of you. And here Saul's doing that same thing. This is how he's acting. And this is why this reads surprisingly positive. What what the writer wants us to see is that although Saul did right things, although he acted in such a way to have this great victory, he defeated all these nations, one can have a level of historical success, we'll say, but be a covenant failure. You see, Saul had success in his life, but he was a complete failure in that his identity was misplaced. He didn't know God. By the world standards, he turned out to be like a pretty good military leader. He had a lot of victories in battle. But when it came down to it, he was empty. When it came down to it, he had nothing. It's so important that our identities are rooted in Christ. Because at the end of the day, Christ is the only thing that will not fail us. He cannot be shaken. He cannot be defeated. There's nothing that can wreck him. It's the only sure thing. Jesus, his work, his faithfulness. You can trust in other things, but they will fail you without a doubt. Even your closest friends, even your family, they'll let you down. But Jesus is the only one who doesn't have an L on his record. Undefeated. I'm going for the undefeated. I'm, I would suggest that you also go that route with the undefeated champion. It's foolish to pick another, pick another to win when you're coming up against Jesus. This is not going to happen. Saul is described here in this way as being this great military leader, but yet he's sandwiched in between two great failures. We come to our failure this morning in verse 1. We're going to go super fast because there's a lot of ground to cover, so stick with me. Otherwise, I will keep you here for an additional hour on top of what we've already been doing. You know I will do it. So just stay with me. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So a massive declaration that comes to Saul from Samuel. And this instruction, we are told, comes from the Lord. The the instruction is this, that Saul in the army is supposed to go and defeat the entire nation of Amalek. This entire people group wiped out. That's what's happening here. 
calling for, as we read here in verse 3, total destruction. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Now, what's happening here? Here's what you need to know. What's happening here is that uh, this group of people is now, Saul and the army, is to go and execute judgment upon this people group. Seems a little bit harsh, no? Like, wipe out an entire people group? I would say, yeah, like, that seems like pretty intense, pretty harsh. And what, what we find here is this. The scriptures do not give us a place to say, you know, that, that, that's not intense, because it is. You're supposed to feel the weight of, like, how intense this is. There's not a place to, like, skirt around and be like, well, you know, like, it didn't really, like, mean this sort of thing. Like, no, it, like, really means what it means. It really is declaring what it's declaring. But we have, along the way, all of the explanations for why this happens. This group of people was supposed to be uh, destroyed as the result of a fulfillment of prophecy, which began all the way back as a result of something that happened in Exodus. And this command was Israel obeying and executing God's judgment upon this people. And this judgment comes in the form of total destruction. In, in this uh, time, there's a, a word that it uh, is kind of used for this. Essentially what the word boils down to is, and it's kind of like, I think you'll get what I, what I mean when it kind of just feels like a little bit not lighthearted, but like we don't really think of these things in, in this serious way. But the, the essential translation is like they're to be banned. It's a ban that's being put on these people. But this, this ban is actually something that would have been practiced frequently within ancient cultures where they would actually uh, try to devote this group of people to total destruction. Israel practiced this. Surrounding nations also practiced this. It also didn't happen. It was kind of like a last resort sort of thing. So it wasn't just like, oh, these nations are trying to like kill off an entire other nation. There's just, there's occasionally something comes to a head where this would have been brought out. Now, the ban or this devotion to total destruction is, appears to have some sort of sacrificial aspect to it because not only uh, was it, uh, People, but it was also animals, all the animals that were involved as well. It's this idea that all of these people are now being handed over to God for judgment. So we, we feel the intensity of the passage. We understand, like, yeah, like this is a really crazy passage, right? Don't worry, it gets, it gets crazier. Uh, but how do we understand this? How do we rightly see what's happening here? How do we see that this is a passage that we can confront and see that the Bible has a way for us to understand and answers for this passage. Well, this passage really only sits poorly with us when we are a group of people who are looking to extol the virtues of the Amalekites. 
we're like, well, why would you want to get rid of them? Like, there could be, like, a couple, like, really good people there. Like, maybe they, like, you know, maybe they just need some investment. Maybe, like, they, you know, kind of were disadvantaged by some of their, you know, positioning. And, like, maybe they had some different hardships. And, and, and as modern people, we are trying to look for the best in this group of people. We're looking to find out, like, why this shouldn't happen. It's natural. And, and I think for Israel... There was also some of that because God's ultimate heart is that no one should perish. He wants to see this group of people change. But here, we find that this is being executed as an act of justice. It's an act of justice that's being executed here, that's being ruled out. This isn't an act of revenge this isn't an act of, uh, of uh, like this petty qualm that God has, but rather this is a judgment that is being handed out on a people that are well-deserving of this punishment. And God intends to bring this punishment to Amal uh, Amalekites, and his attitude is that this action is a just action. Because remember, God's justice is perfect. So what's the backstory? What do we find out? Why is this happening? Well, here's, here's a couple things. We find that God is punishing this group of people for what they did to Israel primarily when Israel first came out of Egypt. If you recall back when Israel, who was an oppressed people, who were enslaved for 400 plus years as they come out of Egypt. They're not a people who have a built-up army. It's a bunch of older people, stragglers, people who are likely weak from being beaten and whipped, people who have faced the wrath of Pharaoh, who have had their workloads doubled and tripled just before they are leaving. These are people who are exhausted, who are beat down. And as the Lord delivers them from Egypt in the Exodus, they go out, they're finally free from this slave master, Pharaoh, in Egypt. As they are going out, they are attacked by the Amalekites. Even before they got to Mount Sinai. This is the most vulnerable people and another nation rises up against it. This would essentially be a, a child that is just born into the world, defenseless, completely reliant upon a parent. And yet now, here comes a nation's worth of warfare. We've got tanks rolling on this child and drones in the sky coming to attack a helpless, defenseless child. And of course, that is going to be an absolutely abhorrent thing to do. Like, we look at that and we say, like, that is outrageous that someone would take advantage of a defenseless group of people. That they would understand that this group cannot take care of themselves and you're coming to attack them in their weakest moment. They barely have any resources as is. Not only that, were they attacked? 
But as Moses recalls in the book of Deuteronomy, the attack was also a, sh a shady attack. It wasn't like a full-on, like, old-school warfare attack where, like, the Amalekites, like, lined up and Israel was supposed to line up and they were supposed to declare the terms of war. And then it's like, okay, like, let's battle. This was like a straight-up ambush is what happens here, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we read, the Lord says, uh, the Amalekites attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off at your rear all who lagged behind you. It was like, they got cut off, they got ambushed. It was like this full-on, like, it wasn't a, even a, a, a nation-honoring battle that would have happened with any other nation at that time. This was the dirtiest attack you could possibly execute. And for this, because of this, because you mess with God's child, it's like, okay, well, you're going to come at me. I'm going to make sure my people are protected. And then we read in Exodus chapter 17, uh, you also have a, a similar statement in Deuteronomy 25. Here's what uh, the Lord tells Moses. Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this happens. The Lord's like, look, I'm going to make sure my people are protected. You guys are not going to be a problem for my people. And I will destroy all of you. I will have war with you. Because you're coming against God's child. Now, again, lest our modern sensibilities be offended that some people, uh, a people group would be destroyed in this manner. What we also have to see is that the Lord is long-suffering, He's just, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, of course, after this happens, the Lord doesn't destroy them right away. No. Not at all. 300 years go by. He lets it play out. Perhaps Amalek will change. Perhaps they will repent. He is slow to judge. He is slow to bring about this justice. This is the last thing that he wants to do. And we find that over this period of time, that the Amalekites, they don't change. They don't change at all. Later we'll get to, in verse uh, 18 we find that the leader of the Amalekites is described as someone who's committing war crimes. Like he's the one who's proud to be in battle. He's someone who's committing war crimes, and this is the defining leader of all the Amalekites. So at any point throughout this period of when God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment upon you, until the current moment here in the book of 1 Samuel, they didn't change one bit. In fact, they probably got worse. And this group of people is going out and destroying in all, all these other nations and acting unjustly towards them. 
And so when God brings this judgment upon the Amalekites, we're supposed to understand that these people were already under judgment. That they are receiving something that was already coming to them because of their status. It's not like this was a good group of people and the Lord's like, well, I guess you guys aren't very good. Like, let's just get rid of you. Like, this was people who were already condemned. And so, it's one of these moments that we find comfort in God's justice. Because God is patient and just, he's also willing to see that his people are protected. If, if God never comes against his enemies, if he never finally stands against them, then eventually, like, his people will be crushed and snuffed out. So in order for God to love his people well, to love you and I well, he has to stand against his enemies to bring about justice. This is only unjust if these people were undeserving. But the truth of the scripture says is that they were deserving, just like we are all deserving of death apart from Christ. We all by default, come under the judgment of God because we are rebels at heart. We want our own way. We want our own things. We want to do our own thing. We don't want anyone else to tell us what to do. But it's only through Christ's work that we find new life in him, that we can come in and have a relationship with him, with that identity that he gives to us. And so here's the, the prescription from Samuel to Saul to go and bring about this judgment. Stick with me. I'm going to go quick again. So Saul, verse 4, summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So here's what happens. They get there, they're laying in wait, ready to attack the Amalekites. And in the middle of this, they notice like, oh, like all the Kenites are also mixed among like this group of people. So like we got to get them out of here. Because the Lord is also doesn't want to bring about an unjust punishment against these other people. And the other people who are here, the Kenites, they're actually the people who helped Israel when they came out of Egypt. So we have one group of people who attacked Israel and who opposed them and was super shady in their attack. And we have another group of people who, who saw that Israel was weak and that they needed help. They needed nourishment. They needed sustenance. They needed protection. And they were like, oh, we got you. We're going to take care of you. Blessing and curses. These two things are displayed here in the text. And so the Lord is very careful to make sure that the Kenites are preserved. He doesn't want anything to happen to them. Verse 7, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly de uh, destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they go into the battle. They have victory in the battle. They 
win. They capture the king. They take the king. Saul's like, oh, let's get the king. We're going to bring him back. All the people uh, are like, oh, look at all this like plunder. We're going to go ahead and take it. All like the really fatty sheep, everything that's like super plush. They're like, oh, that's great. Let's, we're going to take that. And everything that's just super lame and worthless and they can't really get anything out of it, they're going to destroy those things. Now, here's what happens. <clears throat> the verses that are thus laid out are put together in a very clever way. Because it's meant for us to see that in this process, there is great disobedience. Great disobedience. Because here's what we have. Verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Right? So here's what we find. It's a little ironic that it says all the people because obviously like he keeps Agag alive. But then as you read further into the book, there's like a whole another posse of Amalekites that like he didn't get. So he obviously didn't get all the people. So this is his first kind of like little little leak that he left alive, you know, more people than just Agag. But then we've come to verse 9 and we find that Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. They were careful to keep the best for themselves. This is what they did. They went into battle. They were supposed to destroy everything. And they got to walking around. They were like, well, that looks pretty good. Like, maybe we should, like, if we destroy that, then nobody can use it. Like, then that, that's just going to go to waste. But, like, maybe I'll just take that. I'll just take, like, a little bit of that for me. And somebody else is like, oh, yeah, like, that. Like we can't get rid of that. Like, all right, some cattle, some sheep, some resources. There's a nice rug. Like, they just start, like, pulling together, like, all this stuff. And it seemed as if they were, like, really pumped with the spoils of war, what they gained from the battle. And what happens here and what's being displayed here is that Israel and the king of Israel do not share the heart of God. They don't understand the purpose of this judgment. Because God's purpose here was to bring about judgment on the people, but they think, we're just going to go out here and kill some people so we can get like some free stuff. They didn't understand that this was not just, this wasn't killing people for fun. This was not a pleasurable activity. This idea of this was not to, oh yeah, we're just going to go out and have a good time and come up on some resources. We're going to take advantage of other people and get a whole bunch of stuff out of it. You were supposed to come away from this feeling, feeling a bit sick. Like, that was horrible. Like everything's gone. But they don't. They come home, they're happy, they're excited because what they have from the battle, which by, you know, by association kind of tells us like they were probably pretty happy about God's judgment. Like, oh yeah, like I wonder who else God's going to get because then we're going to go out and we're going to get some more free stuff. But nothing could be further from God's heart. He doesn't want to bring this judgment if he doesn't have to. 
the Lord wants people to repent. This is the absolute last thing that God wants to happen. But he will let it happen for his own justice sake. Now we come to verse 10 and we get a little bit more of a description of, of the contrast here with Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now we have this description from the Lord to Samuel. And it's in this description that the Lord says, I have regret that I have made Saul king. He regrets that he's made Saul king, and he regrets this for a particular reason. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, this has to be understood rightly because there's a couple other portions that are coming up where the Lord says, like, I regret that I made Saul king again. But then at the end of the passage we'll come to, uh, the, then there Samuel tells the like the people, he's like, the Lord is not one who regrets. <laughs> it's like, well, he just said he regrets twice. And then he doesn't regret. So like, does he regret or does he not regret? Like, what do we do with this? Right? Kind of another little bit of a tricky passage here, a tricky situation. Here's what you need to know. God's not the same as us. <laughs> one. So it's like, when you and I regret something, we regret something in such a way because we think we've analyzed the situation to the best of our abilities. And we say, okay, like, weighed the pros and cons. I thought about this. And, like, I made the decision. And then after you got an additional piece of information, you were like, oh, if I would have known that, then, like, I would have made a different, different decision. Now I regret what I did. Or maybe you get to the outcome and you regret that even if you didn't get an additional piece of information. You're like, oh, like, okay, like, I got there. Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. I really, I really like, wish that I did something else. I regret what I did there. God is not like us in a one-for-one -one ratio. God is displayed in the scriptures like us because this is how we can understand him, how we can relate to him. But the mind of God is not the mind of man. But this gives us the best way to understand his heart. And what this tells us is that God is not some uncaring robot who's just like, yep, I know everything that's going to happen in the whole world and like blah, 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 and just like hit play, let it go. Yep, no problem. Oh, that bad thing happened. Like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I don't have to be like upset about that because I knew it was going to happen. I know what was going to happen after that. Because God knows the, the, the end from the beginning but yet what's being said here is that not that God is, is changing his mind. It's not being said that God is like, well, I wish I didn't do that. That's not what's being said here by regret. What's being said here is that he is feeling the weight of disappointment at Saul's decisions, at what has happened, of what the people have done, even though he knew it was going to happen. Even though he was aware that this would happen, He's experiencing the feelings of being disappointed. He's understanding that he's heartbroken over Saul's uh, 
direction that he's headed, even though he has known that Saul would head this way. He's let down, even though he knew Saul would let him down. And so this is really a description of God's emotions at what he already knew would happen. No, would happen. He knew from the beginning Saul's heart. He knew Saul's ways. And this is why it's, it's described in chapter 13 that God is seeking a man after his own heart. He's like, I know Saul's not after my heart. I need a man in my own ways, in my own heart. Who identifies with his heart more closely. And so Samuel, his disobedience, it hurts God. Just like it hurts God when we disobey. We can't understand what's happening there, but this is one of the closest ways that we can understand it. And thus, Samuel relates, he says, he's angry and he cries to the Lord all night. He is trying to take on God's attitude. He's angry at the sin. He's angry that God has not been honored. And he's mourning. He cries to the Lord all night. Verse 12, And Samuel rose up early in the, to meet Saul in the morning, and, he told, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and he turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, you all know where this is going because you think you're hot stuff, you set up a monument to yourself. Like, who does that? Come on now. Like, that's the worst idea ever. They just throw that line in there like, yo, he just did this battle, he didn't obey. And then, like, he set up a monument to himself. He thinks he's hot stuff. That's what's happening. He's coming in. He's like, yo, we just won. And, and maybe he's self-deceived. Maybe he's, he really thinks, like, he's, he's crushing it. He's doing all the right things. Because he comes in pretty upbeat, right? Verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said, like, Samuel's, like, coming up, and Saul's like, hey, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It's like... No, like you, like you were saying that, but you definitely did not do that. You definitely did not do that. Saul perhaps is, is so deluded, maybe he's so self-absorbed at this point that he's like, yeah, God's happy. Like I, I like got the job accomplished. Maybe his, in his mind, he's like, just make sure like the Amalekites don't really bother us anymore. Like maybe he translated God's command to just be like, yo, like I just made sure like we aren't going to have any trouble here in the, in the near future made sure that there's no problems. And he comes kind of with this attitude of pride. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. But then we come to Samuel's response in verse 14. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Sam was like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, if you perform the commandment of the Lord, like, why you got like a soundtrack with you? Right? We should hear nothing. But you like decide you're gonna bring the farm home. 
what's happening here. And Saul, he gets a, he dusts off his blame game because he's real good at this. He's like, a little bit rusty here, but I'm going to come back with a strong blame game. He says, verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So here's what happens. He's like, right, blame game 101, just like before. He blames the people, not himself. He's like, it was the people. Like, I was just there doing my thing. And the people, they, they just kind of got a little bit out of hand. But then he, says, then he says this. He's like, he tries to include himself in the part where he thought he obeyed. He's like, they brought them from the Amalekites and we've devoted the rest to destruction. Like, oh yeah, like I was there, like we, we did the thing we were supposed to do. Which is like, makes no sense because it's like, well, you, you, have, you didn't devote anything to destruction because you have all of it here. But then he tries to justify what he did do, what the people did do, because he's like, but we kept the best stuff. We got all the good stuff. Like, he's just, like, so crazy at this point. We got, we got all the, the, the highest quality, the best of the sheep and the oxen. He's like, but we're going to do it for a spiritual reason because we're going to, it's for God. Like, you can't be mad because we're going to do this for God. Like, we got these things so we could have, like, a really cool sacrifice, a really good sacrifice. Like, I did this. Like, you know, for, for like for God. It's a spiritual reason. You can't be upset about that. But he lets a little thing leak out here, which betrays him even more. If you noticed it, he says, We have the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's like, it's not my God, it's just your God. Like, this is your responsibility, this is what you, we got you some stuff. He's like, my God is me. He's interested in serving himself. And he is satisfied in himself. He's not interested in serving the true God. He's like, look, we got your God something. I'm the only other God around here. It's about the self. And this is what keeps us from obedience. When we swap out true obedience to God for our own pursuits, our own desires, our own pleasure. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Right? So here we go. We have this description again. This is Samuel saying, Look, like you didn't do your job. Here's what, you're, what you were supposed to do. You didn't do it. But also, sidebar, Samuel then is declaring here that the state of the people of the Amalekites hasn't changed. They're described as being sinners. They are absorbed with evil. They're people who are self-serving. So we have another further confirmation that they are worthy of this judgment. 
Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Right? So Samuel asked those like, logical questions like, you got an order, you didn't follow the orders, what's wrong with you? Saul comes back, verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. No, I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Okay, that doesn't make any sense because if you did obey, then like you wouldn't be coming back with Agag at all. So this guy, he just is like so full of himself, so crazy. Stick with me. But the people took the spoil, again, here's the blame game, of the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He's like, let me uh, restate my whole thing again in case like, you missed it. Like, Look at all the cool stuff we have. This is for you. Maybe you should say thank you instead of getting mad at me. Like, that's like what, he, what's, what he's getting at here. And Saul, he doesn't seem to understand. He doesn't seem to realize that Samuel wants to obey the Lord. And the instructions for Saul were very simple. But it seems Saul probably kept, had some, some idea about like, okay, here's what we got to do. Like, we could probably keep, keep the king alive and... If we find some other Amalekite groups, maybe we can negotiate with them. Or like, I don't, I don't know, maybe Saul needed another war trophy because he wanted to convince people that he was strong, his identity in being this warlord. I have no clue what happened there. I do know that he didn't obey. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What Samuel comes back with is he says, look, you came back and you thought you were helping God out. You thought you were doing things for him. The Lord wants his people to obey. He wants his people to listen. He says to Saul straight up, look, like I'm like you came back with all like these like sweet lambs and like all these like juicy rams for, like they're fat and everything for like the sacrifice. It's like the Lord doesn't care about that. He knew he wasn't getting that. He asked you not to do that. What he did ask you to do was obey. And friends, this is often how we act. We're exactly like Saul and the people of Israel. Who you think the Lord has told us to do some things, even the basic things. Even the basic things. Read your Bible. Pray. Be in community. Serve as a member of the church. But then we kind of come up with some other idea like, well, you know what would be really good is if like I kind of like was somebody who was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like read a whole bunch of books about prayer instead of praying because then I'll get really good at praying. And then, I can, and then, it's, and then the Lord's like, like I, I didn't ask you to read books about prayer. Like I asked you to pray. 
I didn't ask you to pursue this career field or that career field. I asked you to trust me for your provision and to ask me what we're doing every day. Right? Because what's connected here in the scriptures? Look at, look at this. This is important for us to understand. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Right? Don't do things for God. Obey God with what he has already told you. Right? So there's that understanding of he has told you something. Listen. But then there's those things that we haven't been told yet. And when we haven't been told things, what we do then is say, okay, well, I think that this is a good idea. Like, I'm going to do this. What's that called? Presumption. Continue reading. Verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, right, that's disobedience, is as the sin of divination, which would be akin to witchcraft. You're serving a false god. You're serving a demonic activity. You're serving yourself. And then he says, also, in presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. If you are a person who is not asking the Lord what to do, we're being classified here as those who are committing iniquity and idolaters. Because what you're saying is, I'm in charge. I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to do my own thing. And then I'm going to go about my life and then figure out, like, okay, like, I'm going to obey. But you get yourself into trouble when you start presuming, right? This is why we talk about all the time, we don't want to do good things for God. We want to do what God is doing. And this is why we're always asking, what are you doing? Because I only want to do the things that you are doing. I don't want to come up with good ideas. We only want God's ideas all the time. This is why we always say this, because we don't want to presume. We don't want to come up with our own ideas. If we're going to come up with our own ideas, we're going to come up with them in prayer and bring them to him, bring them to the community, make sure that they are properly vetted before the Lord and discern if the Lord is working. But I'm not just coming up with like, oh, that's like a cool idea. Like, this might be a useful thing to the Lord. I have a lot of crazy ideas, I'm telling you. Like, I have a lot of ideas. But imagine if I executed on all the ideas that I can't come up with. I mean, you guys know we would have, you know, a great many of you know, like, I've come up with the idea for the jacuzzi pizza oven, like, a good number of times. But we don't have one because it would be unwise. Right? I'm like an idea factory. But I, I, we need to have... God's ideas, not just fun ideas, not just ideas that interest us, not just ideas that we prefer. What is he doing? Where is he going? How is he working? Let's find out, let's get on board, and let's follow him. That's our job. Because we have a king, we're not in charge. We follow him wherever he goes. And so here we find that Samuel says, your sacrifice doesn't really matter at all. Like, you want to do these sacrifices. Now, he's not saying sacrifices as a whole, don't matter. But he's saying, relatively to obeying, like you can't, you can't just substitute like this act of, uh, of a ritual sacrifice worship for obedience. Obedience is worship to God. And so we have to follow him in obedience. 1 John chapter 2 tells us, 
that a defining characteristic of those who know God, who are Christians, in verse 3, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. This is the defining characteristic of if you are a Christian. Right? Here's the line, or, or one way to discern the line. If we keep his commandments, do you obey? Obedience is a line that separates those who know him from those who do not know him. Verse 4 who, of First John 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You have to obey the word of God. You have to obey his commandments if you're going to claim to know him. Straightforward. Saul, he's not keeping the commandments. What does that say? He doesn't know him. We continue in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul knew like what he was doing. He's like, look, I feared the people. I, I listened to them. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul ignores God's instructions. He shifts blame to other people. He wants Samuel to come with him. And uh, Samuel is, says, no way. <coughs> Verse 28, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So here we go. We're popping up with this other description again of God not having regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. What's being said here is that he will not change his mind. He will not be like, oh, you convinced me, Saul, like you're a good person. We're going we're gonna to kind of get back on track here. Verse 29 here describes God's uh, essential character, if you will, that he is unchanging. But then we find the earlier description uh, of God saying, I regret that I have made Saul king as one that describes God's heart, his emotions in the changing life of Saul as he's mourning with him. And so two words that, are, that essentially mean the same thing but also mean different things. It's, it's, it's a little bit complicated, but it helps God to, to be seen as identifying with us and willing to act in justice and to punish disobedience here being one of these places where he will punish Saul's disobedience by cutting him off uh, from the kingdom. Verse 30, then, Saul, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So Samuel doesn't, he was initially going to leave, but he doesn't lead this immediate 
removal of uh, Saul because God has not yet brought about Saul's replacement. You can't just be like, oh, we're done with that. It would be worse if Saul just got wiped out as the king and then like there's nobody who's ruling. The Lord's timing is everything. Samuel knows that the Lord's timing is everything. And so he's like, the Lord hasn't told me to remove the king. He just says, you're done. The end of your reign's coming. But so Saul then says, you know, I'm going to go back with you because there's unfinished business. I can't trust you to obey. We read in verse 32, stick with me, almost done. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So this is the attitude of the king of the Amalekites. Samuel comes back and he's like, yo, let's bring out the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And Agag comes and he's pumped. He's just like, it comes, he comes out cheerfully. He comes out with a prideful attitude. He comes out as one who is willing to kind of spit in the face of Israel. He's like, look, I'm still here. I beat you all. In fact, he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. That can mean two things, either that he's made peace with the fact that he could die, but it probably means that like, like, I was fearful that maybe I would, be, I would die in the past, you know, after I was first captured. But I see that you guys kept me around for a reason because I'm valuable. I'm a token here. Like, I see. I was, like, maybe a little bit afraid, but now, like, he's trying to, like, high step in front of Samuel because Samuel's a priest. He's like, what's he going to do? He's not a warrior. But one thing that Samuel does do, and one thing that Samuel is familiar with, although he's not a warrior, Samuel is uniquely positioned as one who has heard the great many sins of the people confessed. He is one who has heard the sins of the nation confessed to him. As people came to make sacrifices, in dealing with their sin before God. They would come and they would say, you know, I have sinned in this way or that way, or this person has sinned against me, or I've sinned against this person. And the people of Israel would describe to him their sinful acts as they confessed these things. And, and, and they were laying these hands onto the animal and, in a sense, transferring this idea of the sins to the animal. Samuel's heard a great many things. He's heard how intense it could be to hear someone say that they've been abused or taken advantage of, to hear someone say that they have murdered someone or killed someone, or whether by accident or, or with purpose. Samuel's heard all these things. And the result of Samuel hearing these things is then that Samuel would have to then perform the sacrifice. And so although Samuel's not a warrior, he is very familiar with the intensity of sin and what that requires. Bloodshed. 
And so as Agag comes in high-stepping, thinking he's safe, Samuel brings forth his declaration. Agag does not confess his sin, but rather his sin has been found out. It is put on display as an act of sentencing and judgment before the people. We read verse 33, and Samuel said, As your sword, Agag, has made women childless. Right? He's like, you've killed a bunch of kids. War crimes. Your sword, you've gone in, you've left the women alive, but you've killed all their children. So shall your mother be childless among women. He prescribes this intense, or he shares this declaration of one of the many things that Agag has done. He says, this is the type of person that you are. And here now is the judgment. As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I mean, a really gnarly passage. Super gnarly. But for Samuel, this is what he knew would happen. This is what happens when sin is involved. It has to be dealt with. There's justice that's brought forth. And Saul has also disobeyed. Now here's the description That is important for us to know. Because Samuel is different than Saul. He is not a warrior. He is not concerned about his identity before the people of God. He is not concerned to be someone who's making sure that they're able to have the fatness of these animals, that they're rich. But he's concerned to obey the Lord. And so when he does obey, this is what we read. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Not before the people of God, not before Samuel, not before the court. He did this as an act of obedience to the Lord. In tough obedience. This was probably the hardest thing he'd ever done. To sacrifice animals is one thing. But as a priest to come into this position and to perform this act was likely horrific. This is not an act that he was likely to be pleased with or enjoy or be happy about. This wasn't to demonstrate that he was tough and he should be feared but rather to demonstrate the holiness of God the purity of God and that God must be obeyed Samuel did it all before the Lord 
We finish in verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, we find this similar description. The Lord having this same heart that Samuel is said to have just moments earlier. Samuel grieved over Saul. And here we find the Lord similarly grieving about Saul's actions. If only Saul had obeyed all the things that the Lord had told him. Yet through through Samuel, Saul was given these explicit orders, and yet he carried them out in part. He did some of the work, but he, he, he didn't see anything wrong with disregarding the parts that he didn't want to obey. Partial obedience is not obedience. Sometimes we think it is, but it's not. When we find our identity in Christ, we want to obey him in word and deed, in everything that he says. Jesus put it this way in his own life in John chapter 6, verse 38. He said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, it's Jesus who always obeyed, who always did the right thing, who always, always, without exception, obeyed everything that the Lord wanted him to do. He says so in John chapter 8, verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. You see, again, Jesus undefeated. Perfect. Perfect record. And what he, what he says there is that we will know that he is who he says he is when he is lifted up, when he goes to the cross, because he has obeyed perfectly. And friends, he has obeyed perfectly for you and I. Because he knew that we are more likely to be like Saul than anything else. That we are likely to be a people who are going to be partially obedient. Who are going to be in the process of sanctification and, and not wanting to, to give up control completely. Because that's what he asks. That we would trust in him. Trust in his plan. Trust in his work. This is what he asks of us. But we're more likely to just be like, well, you, like this area that like, I don't really care about too much, like here you go. You can, how about that one? Let's see how you do. If you do pretty good with that, maybe we're going to upgrade you to like another area. We kind of compartmentalize Jesus quite a bit. But when we don't trust in him, our, our end is the same end that the Amalekites faced. Destruction. Total destruction. 
And so we can either go our way and end in total destruction, or we can trust in him and his way and end with eternal life. This is exactly what Jesus said. Verse uh, John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father. Right. So here's the will of God. If you want to be obedient, here's, here's your cheat sheet. Right. Just like Saul got the cheat sheet, here's, here's, your, here's your cheat sheet. Here's God's will. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The will of the Father is that everyone looks on the Son. Straightforward. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at what you want to do. Look at Jesus. That's our job. Don't look at me. Don't look at my advice. Look at Jesus. I'm worthless garbage with my advice compared to the fullness, the pleasure of what Jesus has to give to his people. He has every resource, every opportunity to speak into your lives, to meet your needs, to give you everything that your hearts desire. Because you don't even know what your heart desires. He knows at the deepest level. We're all confused. He knows. And he's meeting us where we're at. And so if you want to be obedient today, look on the sun. It is pleasing to the Lord to look upon the sun. Lastly, we find this exhortation in Philippians chapter 2, in the great Christ hymn, that as God's people, this is the perspective that we are to have, to have the same mindset of Christ Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are told that we ought to have that same mind among ourselves, which belongs to us when we trust in Christ for salvation. Right? It belongs to us when we trust in Christ for salvation. He emptied himself, taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He obeyed because he knew we wouldn't obey. And so look to him. Set your eyes on him. And when you see him clearly, you want to listen. You want to obey. You want to walk with him. His path is good. His justice is perfect. And ultimately, he paid the price so that we might find true rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your kindness and your faithfulness. Thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for paying that price at the cross that we would be the ones who would have to pay that. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Lord, it was something that, that you we're willing to give to us as an act of love, an act of grace. And so, Lord, we don't want to, to pursue our own identities, but we want to lose our lives for your sake, that we might find them in you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for loving us. I pray that you would cause us to respond in worship now. We love you.
Amen.